Christian in the Campus is a podcast of the Rebels for Christ Campus Ministry. The college campus is a world of competing stories vying for students' attention and allegiance. The goal of this podcast is to orient students towards Christ in this brave new world so that we can bring about a revolution of redemption on the University of Mississippi and Northwest Community College campuses. So if you saw uh, on the Instagram feed uh, yesterday, you know that tonight we are talking about Good job. We were talking about dating, right? Now, when I think about, uh, it was an Instagram story, I'll repeat. Um, when I think about the different areas of college life that matter the most, but are talked about the least, right? The areas of college life that are going to be extremely important to you, but the church is kept on the most surface of levels, my mind automatically goes to the topic of dating. I think this is a damaging disservice for two reasons in particular. First of all, I think dating is foundational, right? Now we talked about this last week, and we're going to talk about it some more tonight, but like the trajectory of dating is what? Marriage, right? It's, it's heading in that direction in some sort of fashion, right? And so the hope is that dating is going to impact at some point the rest of your life, right? It is the foundation. The baggage that you create in dating will be in some form or fashion carried over into your marriage. So, this is something that you're going to want to do well, and you're going to want to think about Christianly. Now, the second reason I think it's a damaging disservice that the, the church has really kind of stayed on the surface level when it comes to dating is that dating is not just foundational, but it is formational, right? When I think back to my college career, dating Mary Beth was one of the most formational things that I did. And the way I thought before I dated Mary Beth, the way I just thought about the possibility of dating people was one of the most formational things that I did. And I think if you're honest with yourself, the same is true of you. For good or for bad, how you think about dating, who you date, your lack there of a dating life, is gonna be one of the most formational things in your college experience, probably. And so this isn't just something that we can slough off if we want to be good disciples of Jesus, because this is going to shape and form us. It's going to shape and form our worldview and how we think about the world. Now that said, I'm kind of being a little bit harsh on the church. I do think there are two reasons in particular why the church has been pretty surface level when it comes to dating, because, well, first off, this is a difficult subject, right? Along with, with um, the awkward conversations that can come along with trying to talk about dating, there's also a lot of shame and guilt that we carry into these conversations, right? We all come into a conversation about dating, and specifically, we're gonna be talking about the Seventh Commandment, right? Don't commit adultery. We're gonna be coming into this conversation probably all with a little bit of baggage, and that's not easy. Now, the second reason I think the church has been lacking in substance on this is that the Bible does not explicitly talk about dating, does it? I mean, think about it for a second. Does the Bible explicitly talk about dating? It's not in 1 Corinthians. It's not in, I mean, none of Paul's letters. It's not Jesus doesn't talk about dating ever. Right? At least dating as the cultural system that you inhabit. Think about it. It's a social construct, right? The cultural dating system that you inhabit is a social construct that was developed probably over the 20th century in the United States of America. And therefore, it's not just that the Bible doesn't choose to talk about it. It's that the Bible, and I don't like to say that the Bible can't do things, but let's just permit this of me. The Bible can't talk about it. 
in the same way that it can't explicitly talk about an iPhone. But here's the thing, right? When we get to this, even though it doesn't say anything explicitly about an iPhone or explicitly about the cultural dating system that you inhabit as college students, it doesn't mean that the Bible doesn't have anything to say about it, right? I think because of this, because the Bible, you know, it's difficult and and because the Bible doesn't really say anything explicitly about it, I think we fall into one or two pitfalls when we, when we, when we think about dating as Christians. The first and, and much less likely pitfall, I doubt any of you actually really think this one, um, is when Christians look at dating, this is the first pitfall we can fall into, they look at dating, they see that it's not explicitly talked about in the Bible, they therefore reject it and opt for an alternative version, such as arranged marriage or courtship. All right. Now, I don't think any of you can do this, but I am going somewhere here, so, so, so stay with me. I think it is a mistake to reject dating on these grounds because, as we talked about, you have to apply biblical principles to non-biblical categories every last day of your life. I mean, think about what you were studying in college, modern medicine, stocks, accounting, the English language even. Think about the things that you use each day, such as your phones or the physical Bible that you currently hold. They didn't have that then. Or your computers or your TVs. Just because the Bible doesn't, have, doesn't explicitly talk about those things does not mean that the Bible doesn't have anything to say about those things, right? The Bible has tons to say about modern medicine and stocks and how we choose to wield the English language and use our phones and what we watch on TV. So no, I'm not really concerned that any of you are going to think, oh man, after Ben's lesson, I think we should reject the cultural dating system and opt for arranged marriage. I don't think any of you are going to go there. Maybe you would, and that would be interesting. We can talk about that. But I don't think any of you are going to go there. But I bring all this up to make this point. As Christians, we are called to date redemptively. And this is something that goes with the whole of Christian life. Every system you function in as human beings, right? Every system that we inhabit, whether they be cultural or political or educational or economic, is a broken system because it was made by broken human beings and it is inhabited by broken human beings. Therefore, the broken system that was already created is continually even more broken. And so in each and every one of the broken systems that you inhabit in this world, it isn't that you are called to hide away from them as Christians, right? The call of the disciple of Jesus is to learn how to, right? By the way, disciple means to learn, is to learn how from Jesus, how we're supposed to live inside of those broken systems redemptively, right? And when I say that, I don't just mean how, not how we, um, you know, it's not that we don't do bad things inside of the bad system, but rather we look at these broken systems and we think to ourselves, how does Jesus show us a way to bring good out of this brokenness? How do we bring good out of the cultural dating system that has led to a 50% divorce, divorce rate? That's the question we're going for tonight. It's a big one. Now the second, and I think this is the much more common pitfall you could possibly fall into, that we often fall into as Christians, is that we function inside of the cultural dating system as it is, just like everyone else, but with one rule tagged onto it, and that is the seventh commandment. 
Don't commit adultery, right? Don't have sex before or outside of marriage. Now, if you grew up in the church, if you grew up with the youth group, I think that has probably been the main focus of, you know, any talks on dating you might have heard. How to not have sex before marriage, basically. And that's it. You can date just like everyone else. You can inhabit the cultural dating system just like everyone else. But we think, for some reason, as the church, that we can expect different results, right? Does anyone know Einstein's definition of insanity? What is it? Yeah, doing the same thing over and over again. You can date just like everybody else. But then you can expect different results. Yeah, but you're not going to have sex before marriage like everyone else does. It's ridiculous. You cannot inhabit the cultural dating system in the same way that the rest of the world does and expect different results than the world gets. We can't do it. We have to push deeper than that. But for some reason, the church has told us that just tacking on the simple rule, we can expect different results with dating. And so I hope you're beginning to see that by staying on the surface level, the church has really set us up a failure to us. And so tonight, hopefully, we're going to dig deeper by asking ourselves the questions, how do the biblical principles of marriage that the Bible does have a lot to say about? How do those apply to the cultural dating system that happen? How do they shape and form how you as college students should think about dating? So we talked about last week, we had scriptures read over us last week um, that all communicated this idea that when we are, even in the most mundane aspects of marriage, right, we're actually getting caught up in something that is much greater and grander. Uh, as Ephesians puts it, we're getting caught up in a mystery, right? And this mystery that we're getting caught up in has something to do with the fact that when we are, even in the most mundane parts of marriage, when we're being faithful in marriage, we are imaging God's relationship with his people and his world, right? This covenantal faithfulness that God has. And so I just want to reread this quote from last week. It comes from the theologian Beth Belford Jones. She writes, in marriage, we bear witness to the world the quality of the divine human relationship, right? As in a faithful marriage, God is faithful to us, right? That's what all those passages were communicating. The husband and the wife who are faithful to one another while being different from one another are signs of the way that God is faithful to us while being different from us, right? God is completely and utter, utterly transcendent. He's beyond our comprehension. He is so just holy and, and, and so utterly good that we literally cannot grasp him, right? But yet in spite of ourselves, he loves us, right? He is ruggedly committed to us despite our betrayal. And so in marriage, what we are doing is we're embodying something about God's radical fidelity, right? And that's where all this is heading to. And so tonight, what we're going to do is ask the question, how do we date in such a way that reflects and leads to the covenantal faithfulness of God expressed and implied in the seventh commandment? And the best way I know how to try to address this question comes from an email 
that I wrote to a friend back when I was a junior in college. So um, I actually do really encourage you to take out your phone. I do want you to go to the website because I put on the website the email that I'm actually just basically going to be reading for us tonight. Um, that is literally what we're doing. We're going to look at this email that I sent, um, and, it, and, and I'll explain it in just a second. But I encourage you, if you go down, it's on the homepage, you scroll all the way down, you'll see dating sheet, you'll see two puppies with a heart over it, you click on that, it'll take you right to the PDF. I was going to print it, but that, is, that would have been a waste of money. So we didn't do that. All right. I'm just going to read this document as it is. So here's a disclaimer. This document was originally an email that I wrote in response to a friend. He was a male. So by the way, this is me, a male, writing to a male, who asked for dating advice from a group of guys in the campus ministry I was a part of and Mary Beth was a part of at Auburn. Mary Beth and I were still dating. We were not even engaged yet. And the language and the phrasing of this email is going to reflect those realities. Though this email was specifically written for that friend, I have updated it and generalized it over the years of, uh, as I've shared this advice with others. And before reading this, I do just want to affirm one thing to you, and that is that this is simply advice, nothing more, but also nothing less. It is not a cookie-cutter way or path to successful dating relationship, nor is it a set of rules by which everyone must abide. It was actually one of many helpful emails that was sent in response to my friend's request. Well, that said, these thoughts do come from Mary Beth and I attempting to reflect on our dating relationship with integrity. I do hope you find them helpful. So, the dating sheet. Dating begins right with the idea of pursuit or pre-dating, as we're going to call it here. And when we think about this idea, I think the word, and I've used this already, trajectory is really important. There is no purpose in a dating relationship that's trajectory is not marriage. But hear this, part of that trajectory is getting to know someone. I didn't feel as if Mary Beth and I were destined for marriage as we started dating. Due to previous experiences Mary Beth had with me during our freshman year, Lord knows if you know these stories that she did not probably think that we were bound immediately for marriage when we started dating. But we started to get to know one another, right? So, trajectory, right? It isn't a beeline, right? We're not in a Christian college where you, two weeks after you start dating, you're bound for marriage, right? That's not what we're doing. It's not, it's not what I'm trying to communicate when I talk about trajectory. Trajectory, there's like art, right? When you think about trajectory, you kind of think of this art. It's heading somewhere, but it's not a beeline, right? It's not just boom, get there. And so, somewhere on the path, you've got to be somewhere on the path of, of getting to marriage. And so if you are a, you know, a couple months into a dating relationship and you already know somehow that, man, this is like, this ain't happening. We're not getting married. I think you really should reconsider being in that relationship. If you are like a year into a dating relationship and you know, surefire, no chance in the world we're getting married, you should really start to reconsider if you should be in that dating relationship. And again, this is advice. So take it with a grain of salt. But dating is neither you know, immediately headed to marriage, but nor is it aimless, right? It does have purpose. It has trajectory. It is heading somewhere, and hopefully it is heading towards marriage. The next thing I think we need to talk about when we're talking about pursuit is this. 
Do not pursue your idealization of a guy. If you're, if you're a girl and if you're a girl or if you're a guy, don't pursue your idealization of a girl. Pursue that actual person, right? Don't pursue your idealization of the person. Pursue the actual person. When I had liked uh, previous girls before Mary Beth, I didn't really like them. I really didn't. I liked an idealized possibility of what I wanted our relationship to be. But when I had pursued Mary Beth, my dad had just died about like two months earlier. And so I was much more tethered to reality. I wasn't living in this kind of idealized kind of frame set, mind, mind working. Those are the mixed words there, sorry. <laughs> framework, mindset. <laughs> frame set, my words, what I said. Yeah, so, sorry. I was in a different framework or a different mindset, right? I was a little bit more tethered to reality. And so instead of pursuing this like idealized version of who Mary Beth could be a really more not even her, but what the relationship could look like. I actually pursued her as a person. Don't pursue an idealization of a guy or a girl. It's not a healthy way to start a relationship. It is going to set you up to disappoint the other and be disappointed by the other in ways that you just shouldn't set yourself up to do. Pursue the actual person, right? Also, I mean, idealizing the person, I mean, I don't want to be like, overhanded here, but like, it's objectification in a sense. In a similar vein, and this was really, I think, rampant, I think many are often a lot fonder of the idea of having a significant other than the actual person they are pursuing. In other words, when we are interested in another person, what we're actually interested in is the security or social status that we'll receive if they like us back. The security or the social status that I would have because well, I'm not in a dating relationship. Yet again, this is treating someone as a means to an end rather than an end in and of themselves, which is what? Objectification. I think a really good test for this is to honestly ask yourself the question. If you're pursuing a guy or a girl and it, and it doesn't work out, ask yourself the question, would you be more disappointed that you don't get to spend quality time with that person? Or would you be more disappointed in the fact that you were gonna lose the social status or security that you would have received by being in a relationship with them? Did you care more about the relationship or did you care more about the person? Because often I think we care more about the relationship and the social status and the security that comes along with it than we do about the actual person we're pursuing. Because you have all been indoctrinated into a culture that tells you that you're supposed to show up to college and meet your spouse and move on. And I think that's really dangerous. And it's not a good foundation on which to build a relationship, right? Treating someone as a means to an end rather than an end in and of themselves is not just, you know, a bad way to start a romantic relationship, but that's just a bad way to start a friendship, right? And so I think that's something we need to be careful of. But let's say, let's say that somehow you were able to woo someone into liking you back. You know, you turn on the charm and they agreed to date you. I think where we need to start talking about his boundaries, physical and otherwise. Now concerning physical boundaries, an obvious 
and simple but very difficult thing to do is to set them. I do think this plays out differently in each relationship, but making physical boundaries clear and specific is at least helpful to Mary Beth and I. Remember, we're still dating at this point. Physical boundaries are twofold. Things not to do and places not to be. Now, things not to do explains itself, but places not to be, for example, would be like agreeing to not go into your room or your significant other's room if no one else is in the apartment, right? The best way to keep from crossing boundaries, physical boundaries that you don't want to cross would be to not put yourself in a situation to cross them. Simple, difficult. Set them and keep hold to them. Now, physical boundaries matter, right? And what I'm about to say, I'm not trying to devalue physical boundaries, but the church has been often so focused on the physical boundaries, right? Don't commit adultery. We at least know the Bible says that. We don't know what else it says about dating, but we do know it says that, so don't do that. That we have de-emphasized boundaries in other areas of dating relationships. Emotional boundaries, intellectual boundaries, time boundaries. We'll unpack that more in a minute. Social boundaries, spiritual boundaries. In turn, the church's advice on dating has often been, date like everyone else, but just don't have sex. And as we mentioned earlier, things just do not work that way. You cannot act like a married couple, planning and integrating your whole lives around each other, having no emotional or temporal or intellectual or social or spiritual boundaries, and expect your physical boundaries to not want to catch up to the rest, right? So let's say every other facet of your relationship is all the way up here. Right? You have no social boundaries, you have no time boundaries, you have no spiritual boundaries, you have no emotional boundaries, but yet you're trying to keep your physical boundaries back here. What's going to happen to the physical boundaries? Yeah! They're going to want to match the rest of them. We cannot treat our lives as if they're not integrated. Nor can we treat our relationships as if the different facets of them aren't integrated and interrelated. And so we need to have not just physical boundaries, but social boundaries, time boundaries, spiritual boundaries, right? You should not, I mean, just use a spiritual one, for example. You should not only go to church with your significant other. You should probably not sit by your significant other at church every week. Now, I do want to make a short disclaimer here. And I think we're going to say that guys would tend to make this mistake more, but I think this is true of both genders. It can be true of both genders. This is not an excuse to not be vulnerable with your significant other and open up to them, if that would be your tendency. That is not an excuse. This is not an excuse to do that, all right? Rather, this is you thinking to yourself, how can I care for my, my significant other by setting appropriate boundaries in all facets of our relationship so that we can grow in a healthy context together, building trust towards engagement and thus marriage, right? This isn't an excuse to not open up to them on any level, right? It just means you need a boundary about what we can open up. 
Mary Beth and I have found out that when we do this, when we set more than just physical boundaries, our physical boundaries actually hold up better. Now, when I think about non-physical boundaries, where my mind goes is, is, is how we wield the word love inside of romantic relationships, inside of dating relationships. And we've talked about this before, both at Connect and also we've been at FaceTime, we talked about this as a fruit of the Spirit, but biblical choice is, biblical love is a choice, it is a commitment, it is a covenant that involves feelings, it involves feelings, but it isn't just simply feelings, right? I want to take you to two passages. Right? Love, choice, commitment, yeah, yeah. We'll take you to two passages. This is the Old Testament one. There'll be one in the New Testament too. But as we look at Psalm of Solomon, chapter 8, verses 6 and 7, I want you to ask yourself this question Can your current dating relationship or your past dating relationship handle a force as great as love is described to be in this passage? Love is going to be described to be a great force in this. And I want just, does your fragile dating relationship or currently or your past fragile dating relationship definitely was fragile because it didn't last it's past it's kind of mean but it did rhyme um could it handle could it could it is it secure enough to handle the force that's talked about in song of solomon chapter 8 verses 6 and 7 read this place me like a seal over your heart like a seal on your arm what does that mean commitment Okay, the first word here is commitment. It's, it's this sealing, it's this covenant that's being made. For why do you need to have commitment for love to be introduced? For love is as strong as death, it's jealousy, unyielding as the grave. It burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love, rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth for one's household for love, it would be utterly scorned. Does your dating relationship currently, or your past dating relationship, did it have enough security, did it have enough commitment to handle this kind of force? What's the answer I'm looking for here? No. Everyone say no. Three, one, two, three. Good job. No. All right. Second passage. First Corinthians 13. We all know this one. Often read at weddings. Appropriately so. But as we read this passage, I want you to ask yourself a question. Can your current or past dating relationship, feeble and fragile as it is, produce the kind of love that is described in this passage, right? Is there enough commitment? Is there enough skin in the game in your dating relationship to produce this kind of love? Biblical love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not Self-seeking is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight the evil, but it rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Do you get the picture that's being painted? Love only comes through complete and utter surrender and submission to the other. Covenant. We've got to start thinking about how we wield this word in our dating relationships. Is there a level of commitment, and should there be? My suggestion would be no. The level of commitment in a dating relationship that can produce this kind of love, and that can handle the kind of love that was talked about in Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. Now, keeping this in mind while dating, 
and letting it shape how we use the word love in our dating relationship is helpful, I think, in many ways, but two in particular. First, it's helpful with keeping the physical boundaries that you set, right? The physical boundaries that we just talked about. By being careful in how we use the word love, it is harder to hoodwink ourselves into thinking we can go further physically than we should. It reminds us that if you are dating, you are not married. This is Micah, and Micah was married with a nice camp semester. He was also the guy who spoke at the tree last weekend. The only thing you have, this is a quote from Micah, the only thing you have committed to one another in a dating relationship is that you will let them know if you start to date someone else. Now that may put a damper on things, but it's also an important safeguard for physical boundaries. What physical boundaries would you not cross with your significant other if that was in the back of your mind? It's not a bad rule of mind. Now, and by the way, I mean, just to give you an example of this, we were, uh, we, back when I was an apprentice at Auburn, we did a relationship, uh, we did a, a series on relationships just like this. And we talked about some of this stuff. And one of the girls in our ministry and the guys in our ministry were dating for a really long time. This guy thought he was going to marry this girl. He was my friend. I was happening for a few years. He thought I was going to marry this girl. Because of the series, she broke up with him. Which is really awkward because I was really close to him. He thought he was going to marry this girl. But she had full right to break up with him. She didn't make promises to him. There are certain promises you don't make in a dating relationship. Therefore, there are boundaries emotional, physical, spiritual, social, temporal that you shouldn't cross. Because <clears throat> it can't produce the kind of love that's talked about in 1 Corinthians 13. It cannot handle the love that's talked about in Song of Solomon, chapter 8. Second, being careful with how we wield the word love helps us keep a healthy balance between our romantic relationship and your other relationships, right? Your relationship with your friends, your relationship with your family, your relationship with God. Now concerning friends, when people pair off, it is often not too long before they have almost exclusively hang out with each other and neglect their friendships. And this is a humongous mistake. Now remember, as I say this, I was writing a guy writing to a guy. You need your Christian brothers and girls. You need your Christian sisters to ground you. You need them for spiritual encouragement, right? As iron sharpens iron, so one Christian sharpens another. And you need them as accountability partners if you're going to be able to navigate the very complex and fraught and broken cultural dating system that you currently inhabit. Right, if it is as hard as we are saying that it is, you're going to need help from, the, from your gender on this one. And here's the thing. You should want this for your significant other as well because you cannot be their sole source for communal spiritual formation. So why would you want to bear that weight and shortchange them in the process? So if you find yourself planning your whole day, your whole week, and perhaps your whole life around your significant other, the person you date, rather than intentionally spending time with your brothers or if you're a girl spending time with your sisters, it's time to take a step back, have a very difficult conversation with your significant other, and start being intentional about spending time with your brothers if you're a guy and spending time with your sisters if you're a woman. And also encourage your significant other to do the same. Because you cannot be their rock to them. Not yet, at least. 
in the long run, it's going to make you a better person for your significant other, isn't it? And though we fall into this trap sometimes, Mary Beth and I both committed to each other to not neglect our friendship because of our relationships. And I think, I mean, I had nine groups. Two of them were Mary Beth's brothers. I've gotten close to, but I mean, some of them were really awesome guys. They helped shape and form me and made me a much better husband because I did not neglect my friendships with them when I started dating Mary Beth. And the same is true for her. Concerning family, now I need you to remember this. I wrote this as a very stupid junior in college. I was trying to be funny, and that was a long time ago now because I'm 27. Envy is not my bay before anyone else. Sentences I really don't like to come out of my mouth. Um, my mom and my sisters are. Now, I did live in the same town as my mom and one of my sisters when Mary Beth and I started dating. Now, that does not mean that I have to spend more time with them than I do with Mary Beth, or that I can't ever choose to hang out with Mary Beth rather than my family. But what this does mean, what this does mean is at the end of the day, until or unless Mary Beth and I get engaged or married, that my family is my priority. Our generation tends to leave and cleave way before it should. In the long run, this is actually better for him, Mary Beth, and my relationship. Because as I habituate how to serve my mom and my sisters, the hope is, and I've found this to be true, it is going to translate over to my relationship with Mary Beth if and when we are married. Now, this is just free. It's not on the sheet. But here's something I really encourage you to do. If you are getting uh, serious in relationships, I want you to watch how your significant other treats their immediate family. Because what happens the moment you get married? What do you become to your significant other? Immediate family. Maybeth has the good, the bad, and the ugly in her immediate family. We all do, really, right? I do. I have the good and bad and ugly all just right here myself. The laughing part of the ugly part of it. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, but here's what I want you to do I want you to watch how they treat their family one of the most attractive things about Mary Beth the longer we dated is the more of the time I got to see her interact with her family how, how I got to see her interact with all the different facets of her family the good, the bad, the ugly and see the, the utter loyalty she had to them the faithfulness and the, the gentle self um, I mean, other self-sacrificing, other-oriented, just care she had for them. I thought to myself, man, that's a woman I can marry, <laughs> right? I mean, if she treats them like that, she's going to treat me like that, because that's what I'll become, immediate family. Watch how your significant other treats their immediate family, because that's going to be a great representation. It's not, you know, one-to-one -one ratio, but it's a great representation of how they're going to start treating you if you get married. Finally, concerning God, Mary Beth and I both agree to love God more than we care about each other. We think this is vital to our relationship. First, it is the best and only way to keep us together and caring for each other well, right? I mean, if, if marriage is this great mystery and dating is on the trajectory of marriage, then God should really be the most important thing here. Second, and I think this is really important, it prevents us from making the other an idol, asking the other to fulfill a role that only God was meant to fulfill. If you ask your significant other to play a role that only God should be playing in your life, being the source of your joy, being the source of your hope, being the source of your security or your sustenance or salvation, it prevents you from serving them well. 
doesn't it? And it absolutely crushes them by putting a weight on them that should only be on the shoulders of God, a weight that God really readily and quickly wants to be for you. So love God more than you care about your significant other. And by the way, this is like the one thing that really stays true when it comes to marriage. Love God more than you love your spouse. Because if you love, if I love Mary Beth this much, or if I love Mary Beth more than I love God, I could love Mary Beth about this much. If I love God more than I love Mary Beth, I could love Mary Beth this much. Does that make sense? I can love her a whole lot more if I love God more than I love her. She may be ranked lower, but it's a lot more love being spread. All right. If you're looking at the sheet, I'm not going to read this last sentence, but this last paragraph, but I do just want to make this one point. Get into discipling relationships with couples, right? So the most formational thing that I did, I mean, I just look at older couples. Uh, Mary Beth and I had great couple friends who were, who were dating. They were kind of the same stage as us, who were engaged, uh, who were young marrieds without kids, young marrieds with kids, and then all the way up to, you know, just older people as well. Find role models. Look at how they, they interact with one another and, and learn from them. It's a really valuable thing. Now, in the original email, I didn't have this last part. Uh, it's an addendum. And, um, and so, um, yeah, a dating relationship can end in one of two ways, right? What are those two ways? That's right, engagement or a breakup, right? So we'll take the negative one, we'll get that out of the way. Here's the bad news. But breakup, covenantal breakup. You and your significant other, there's my one piece of advice on breakups. You and your significant other are first and foremost covenantal members of the body of Christ and secondarily significant others. Don't mix that order. And if you hold true to this, breakups won't be easy. I'm not saying I'm telling you that, but they can be managed. Because think about it. If you are members of one body, you are not going to try to divide that one body if you break up. If you are members, because that body is also your body, right? you're not going to try to divide yourself. If you're members of one body, first and foremost, you're members of the body of Christ, secondarily significant others. You're not going to try to hurt the other in that breakup, because to hurt the other would be to hurt yourself if you are members of the body. Right? So I think that's a really important thing to remember. Now, engagement. If any of you who are dating currently are able to uh, woo your significant other into uh, hoodwink them into engage, getting engaged to you and marrying you, Here's the two pieces of advice that I got. First, do premarital counseling. There's actually a rule that I have, two rules. If you uh, are gonna do your wedding, one of them is you have to do premarital counseling. I'll not marry you if you don't. Um, it can be one of the most rewarding and powerful experiences of your life, which certainly was for Mary Beth and I. Um, secondly, your engagement is not about the wedding. It's about the marriage that follows, all right? That is so countercultural in today's world, right? It is so hard to not get caught up in all the wedding planning and make your engagement about the wedding. You're really gonna have to swim up stream of the current culture if you wanna achieve this, but your engagement should not be about the wedding. I mean, it should not consume your thoughts. What should consume your thoughts is the fact that after the wedding, you're gonna be married to this person for the rest of your life, you should really be doing some hard work preparing for that, right? Your engagement, I think, can be a time of amazing growth. It certainly was for Mary Beth and I. And I think it's true because God often works mightily in transitions. 
and engagement is certainly a great time uh, for transitions. Let me um, just close out quickly with this. Sexual sin uh, is really considered taboo in Christian circles. With them, as we talked about, comes a lot of shame, comes a lot of guilt. And often, I think this is due to the scare tactics that are used to keep you from breaking the seventh commandment, don't commit adultery. Phrases like, don't give away a part of yourself that you can never get back. It's not a Bible verse. It's a human-made, faulty verse. They make us think and feel like sexual sin is the one sin for which you cannot receive forgiveness and which you cannot receive healing. And so if you find yourself there tonight after we've talked a lot about physical boundaries, I just want to point you to two verses that say otherwise. The first, sorry. The first is 1 John chapter 3, verse 20. John, the apostle of love, writes, If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts. Therefore, if you have a lot of shame and a lot of guilt, it's okay. God's greater than that shame and that guilt. And hear this, and he knows everything. He knows the sin in your life that you aren't even self-aware enough to realize that you have. So you know, because of this, you may have shame, you may have guilt, but God is greater than the shame and the guilt. He's greater than your own part. And I think we see this story, I mean, this principle beautifully played out in the story that John writes about in chapter 8 of his gospel. The woman is caught in the act of adultery. And the Pharisees bring this woman trying to, to Jesus, trying to trick him, trying to get him and you know, back him into a corner as they often did. What are you going to do with this woman, Jesus? And he slowly gets rid of all of these Pharisees by saying, let he who does not have sin in his heart cast the first stone. In other words, yeah, no, you bring your own baggage to this circle too. And then he walks up to her and he says, not you're tainted forever, but you, know, you can still hang around as a second-class citizen inside the kingdom of God. That's not what he says to her. He doesn't walk up to her and say, you know, this isn't something you, should you can really recover from. Like, I can forgive you, and, you know, you can, like, move somewhere else and, like, kind of, like, just maybe work it out later. He says, go. Go back to your home and leave your life of sin. In other words, you are already forgiven. But hear this. You can be healed. You can live into the perfection that I call you to as the Son of God. So if you're there tonight, feeling shame and guilt because of sexual sin in your past, just know that the church does not come as the bride of Christ untainted. It becomes rather dirty and is only made pure by her grace.